As we said, uh, we're going to continue our series that we've been in for the past uh, few weeks, and it's a series that we've been calling The Enemy, or The Accuser, Destroyer, Deceiver. It, it's, it's this focus that we've been, uh, we've been talking about, the fact that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have an enemy, right? We have an enemy, it's the devil, and to s- put it simply, he's out to get us right? He is out to bring about our destruction, our demise, and scripture is clear about that. First Peter 5, 8 says, be self-controlled and alert, because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's out to get us. He doesn't like us. Not only does he not like us, he hates us. He wants us to, per, to destroy us, and he wants nothing more than to prevent us from experiencing the life that Jesus came to give, a life that is talked about in John 10.10, 10, one of the key verses around here at LifePoint. And so throughout this series, we've highlighted different ways that Satan tries to bring about our demise. In week one of this series, we talked about that he is the deceiver who attacks our mind with lies, right? He tries to plant seeds of doubt in us because he knows that if we question the goodness of God, once we begin to do that, it's much easier for us to disobey him. And you can probably think of scenarios where that's true in your own life. When you begin to question the goodness of God, it's much easier to say, "Mm, you know what, I think I'm going to do things my own way rather than trust God's goodness, Sometimes we'll begin asking the questions, how could God let blank happen? And we begin to start asking that question, never really coming to an answer that Scripture provides for us. It leads us down this trail where we begin to doubt God's goodness. And now we're not making decisions anymore based on God's goodness. We're making decisions based on how we feel. And that's going to get us into trouble. And so we talked about that in week one, and we saw how this tactic was on display for the first time in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where you have Satan in the form of a serpent, and he approaches Eve and begins to plant seeds of doubt. And he says, did God really say, then he goes on with his statement, did God really say, he's beginning to plant these seeds of doubt. He says, oh, you surely won't die if you touch that, if you eat that. And we know Eve took the bait. In week two of our series, we talked about how Satan is the accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. He's good at this. He speaks uh, all about, or he reminds us often of our shortcomings. Satan wants us to, or he wants to make sure that our guilt and shame stay at the forefront of our minds. He doesn't want to experience the forgiveness that God offers. He doesn't want us to remember that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants us to hang on to the guilt, the things that we've done, the shame that has followed, so that we can never get past it. And not only that, in Revelation 12, 10, it says that he is accusing us before God night and day. Last week, Pastor Chris shared with us that Satan is the destroyer who attacks your will with pride. He uses our pride to keep us from humbling ourselves in order to do what's right. 
See, the devil knows that we're easy prey when we think we're strong, when we think we got it all together. Because everyone who thinks they're strong and thinks they have it all together, they're no longer alert to Satan's schemes. They let their guard down. And so when we think everything is going well in our lives and we don't have any reason to be concerned, when we think, oh yeah, me and God are super tight, we got this on lock, we begin to let our guard down. And of course, these are just a few of Satan's many tricks, many tactics to bring about his mission or accomplish his mission of seeing our destruction. And so this morning, we'll continue to see examples of Satan's attacks in an effort to steal and kill and destroy. It's his job description. That's what he does. As Trevor reminded us, and I know many of you are aware, today's Palm Sunday. Right, it's the Sunday before Easter, and Palm Sunday was the celebration of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And on that day, Jesus came riding into, a, into the city on a donkey. And, and while he was doing that, people waved palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday, and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. We find uh, the, triumphal, the account of the triumphal entry recorded for us in, in a number of different Gospels. And I, I would just simply want to read for us Mark's account of the triumphal entry in Mark 11, verses 7 through 10. It says this, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread the branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record a great deal of what takes place in the life of Jesus in that week following Jesus' triumphal entry. They record numerous events as well as many of the things Jesus taught the people. And as Trevor alluded to, this upcoming week, we have the opportunity to look back on and celebrate the things that took place in Jesus' life some 2,000 years ago. And of course, that all culminates in the celebration of Easter next Sunday. However, due to our current teaching series, I don't just want to highlight random events and teachings that took place in the final week of Jesus' life. What I want to do this morning is focus on Satan's work during that specific week. I want to talk about how one of the, the, the primary weeks in Christianity, one of the weeks that we celebrate most, was one of the most active weeks that Satan ever had. And we're going to highlight some of that this morning and talk about what he was up to. And so with that in mind, we'll be looking at numerous passages this morning, primarily in the gospel accounts, and we'll start in the book of Matthew, specifically Matthew 26. And so if you have a copy of the Word of God this morning, I'd invite you to turn there, Matthew 26, and, and we'll be taking a look at a passage there in just a moment. And then, like I said, we'll be jumping all around the gospels, and so prepare yourselves for that. Hopefully you'll follow along with me as we kind of dive in. Now, as we just mentioned, the week begins with the triumphal entry on Sunday. And everyone is celebrating the fact that Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna. Everyone is celebrating this fact. However, it's not long before the gospel writers make us aware of the work of our enemy. 
on Monday, the very next day following this parade that takes place into the, in the city of Jerusalem, we learn of the desire of the religious leaders to kill Jesus. Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5 says this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Luke writes, he records a very similar idea in, in Luke 19, verses 47 and 48. It says, every day he, being Jesus, was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, if you've had a chance to read that, you already know that their opposition, the religious leaders' opposition toward Jesus began much earlier in Jesus' ministry. It, wasn't, it didn't begin in this particular week, and there's multiple examples of that throughout the gospels. In Matthew chapter 9, they accused Jesus of blasphemy or speaking falsely about God. In that very same chapter, they looked down on Jesus. They condemned him for spending time with sinners and tax collectors, those who had, uh, were looked down upon in that society for their actions and what they did, how they behaved, the lifestyles that they had. Also in that same chapter, they claimed that Jesus used demonic powers to drive out demons. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees questioned Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath, which was meant to be a day of rest, which if he did that would have, in their mind, broken one of the, the laws that they were supposed to hold. And it was that instance that we are uh, made aware that they began plotting to kill him. In John chapter 11, the Sanhedrin, which was the highest Jewish authority in Israel, was also plotting to kill Jesus. In Luke 11, it says they opposed him fiercely and they tried to catch him in something he might say. You see, there's no denying the religious rulers' long-standing opposition to Jesus. They regularly disagreed with what he said and they certainly didn't agree with what he did. And so their desire to kill him following the triumphal entry, it's nothing new. This isn't breaking news by any means. It's just yet another manifestation of Satan's work in their lives. And as we consider maybe some of the backstory and who these guys were and their issues with pride and why they hated Jesus, which is laid out for us a little bit in the Gospels, as we think about that, I think it's safe to say that Satan used the pride and envy of the religious rulers to not only drive them away from Jesus, but also to attack him in the process. It was their pride that kept them from humbling themselves and doing what was right. After all, they were supposed to be the experts in the law. They were supposed to be the religious leaders. They were supposed to be the ones who everyone looked up to. Jesus called them out for that and, and how they, they loved to have the seats of honor. They loved to be the ones who, who were given the best position to have the authority and all the prestige. And ultimately, they didn't want to give all of that up 
the authority, the power, the prestige, especially to some nobody from Nazareth. Pride and envy caused them to oppose Jesus rather than to follow him. Now, just like when you read the Old Testament and you find yourself thinking about the Israelites, man, these guys are morons. Why can't they figure it out, right? We can oftentimes do that with the religious rulers. Like, wow, Jesus is standing right in front of these dudes and they still don't get it, right? They still don't get it. And we can be quick to judge them. But before we do that, we need to ask ourselves a very simple question. What am I not willing to give up in order to do things God's way? What's going on in my life that I'm doing because I like the way it's, it's going, I think it's best for me, or I think it's working, what am I not willing to give up in order to do things God's way? Because we, thin, we tend to think our way is working just fine. Our way is best, right? We must because we're doing it, right? We must think it's working. But what if God wants us to do something differently? You see, God says to save sex for marriage, but we're living with a person we're not married to. Are we willing to give up that lifestyle that we would say, well, it's easier this way. It's easier to make ends meet this way. It's certainly more convenient this way. Or this idea that God says to give a tenth of our income to the local church, not because the church needs it. No, do we really think God needs our money? Like, who do we think we are, right? Like, no, if you don't want to give, okay, don't. God doesn't need our money. It's a form of worship. It changes our heart when we do. LifePoint doesn't need your money. There's no local church in the world that needs your money. God calls us to do that because he knows it's going to change your heart. But we don't give a tenth. We give whatever's left at the end of the month. Are you going to follow your way because you think it's working, you think it's best, or are you going to do what God wants you to do? See, God says to forgive. God says to forgive, but we don't have any desire to do that. No, no, Pastor Derek, they hurt me. You don't understand. I'm not telling you to, to be a doormat. I'm not telling you to forget. The Bible never says forgive and forget. That, like, that's not biblical. Hopefully we understand that. Like, that. That's not in the Bible. If God forgot our sin, there would be no need for a Savior. Have you ever thought about that? So this whole idea of forgive and forget, that's, that's a bunch of bull. Like, that's not what God is talking about. But forgiveness does more for us than it does for them. And so are we going to do what we feel is best? Because you know that lack of forgiveness in your own heart has been tearing you up. And the other person is gone. They're already moved on. So why are you holding on to it anymore? God's trying to free you from that. We've got to let that go. Do things God's way. And so perhaps like the religious rulers, our pride is giving Satan a foothold. He's got us right where he wants us. And it's keeping us from humbling ourselves and being obedient to what God says. That's only Monday. Here we go, right? As the week goes on, we see Satan's work in the lives of the 12 disciples. On Wednesday of that week following the triumphal entry, Satan goes to work on Judas. Check out what Luke writes in uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. There's a very interesting phrase. It's found in verse 3. It says, Satan entered Judas. What does that mean? What does that mean? Theologians, commentators on Scripture have been discussing that for, for a long period of time. And does that mean what was Satan demon-possessed? Was, was uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, excuse me, Satan-possessed? Demon-possessed by Satan? Is Judas all of a sudden just a puppet? What's going on here? Most commentators would agree, though, that it means that Judas had put himself in a position where he could be influenced by Satan. He put himself in a position where he could be influenced by Satan. Perhaps it was his pride right? Perhaps it, he was full of pride like the religious rulers were. Maybe he felt that he could do something better with the money that he was supposed to be collecting, which we know is true as other gospel accounts tell us. Perhaps Judas believed lies about who Jesus was, or he didn't fully understand what Jesus had actually come to do. Whatever the case, Satan was using Judas to accomplish his purpose of destruction, Satan wanted to keep Judas from experiencing the life that Jesus came to give, and at the same time, Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. What's important for you and I to understand or to see is the fact that Satan is mentioned in this passage is significant because it highlights what our entire series has been about, that we have a supernatural spiritual enemy who is constantly working to oppose God and those who follow him. You see, Satan isn't some bystander. He's active. He's constantly looking for people to devour. This is why Peter implores us to be self-controlled and alert and to resist his attacks. Because he knows if we fail to do so, we will succumb to Satan's influence. Unfortunately, Judas, despite being one of the twelve, despite interacting with Jesus on a daily basis for a period of three years, he was unable to resist. He was unable to free himself from Satan's influence. And so the very next day, Judas leaves the Passover meal early in order to gather those who would eventually arrest Jesus. John 13, 21 through 30, it gives an account of that particular Passover meal when Judas leaves. Check this out. It says, and, af and he had, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and, asked, and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him, 
but no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to go give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had, Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. See, there's no denying the work of Satan in the life of Judas. But what's unfortunate is that Satan had his sights set on more than one disciple. Next, he takes aim at one of the most prominent disciples, Peter. Flip over in your copy of the Word of God to the Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Shortly over the Passover meal on Thursday evening, Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter. We check out that exchange in verses 31 to 34 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You see, in a continued effort to carry out his mission of destruction, Satan looks to attack Peter. And Jesus says, Simon, or Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now you may be wondering, what does sift you as wheat mean? Well, in that period of time, right, there would have been farmers who would have used winnowing forks, big wooden forks, and they would throw up piles of wheat in the air that they had collected from their harvest, and they would throw it in the air to separate the wheat grain from the chaff, right? And the piles of wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would get blown away. So what was garbage would, would fly away and what was still good would fall to the ground. What was usable would fall to the ground. And so when Satan asked to sift Peter as wheat, he is looking to separate Peter from the pack and see what he's made of. In other words, Satan is looking to test Peter. Or in Derek Goody vernacular, Satan is about to come at Peter's dome, Right? That's about what's going to happen. He's about to be under attack. Satan is going to come after him. And if you remember the Old Testament story of Job, Satan does the very same thing. This isn't new. He does the very same thing. Satan approaches Jesus about wreaking havoc in the life of Job to see if this man who has been a faithful follower of Jesus, of God, will remain a devoted follower when everything hits the fan. And in verse 32 of this passage in Luke 22, Jesus indicates that Peter will not have to go through this trial alone. Jesus has prayed for Peter. What an amazing thought. Jesus has prayed for Peter. However, Jesus also seems to indicate that there will be some kind of temporary failure on the part of Peter. Jesus says to him, and when you have turned back, and when you have turned back, in other words, when you get back on track, of course, Peter is confident, perhaps even arrogant, about his ability to stand firm. So much so that he declares he will follow Jesus to prison and to death. However, Jesus knows Peter better than, better than Peter knows himself. 
And in verse 34, Jesus sheds light on Peter's impending failure, saying, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. See, this conversation, this brief conversation, is a powerful reminder for you and I who are followers of Jesus. It's a reminder that we will experience trials and attacks in our life. At some point, Satan is going to sift you as wheat, to see what you're made of, to test you. It's also a reminder that Jesus is by our side through it all. Jesus understands what we're going through, and he goes before God the Father on our behalf. This conversation also serves as a reminder that due to our sin nature, there will be bumps in the road. We will screw it up at some point. There will be times in our lives where we need to turn back. And finally, it's a reminder that God is faithful toward us and that he makes it possible for us to turn back to him. Like the father in the story of the lost son, God is eagerly waiting for our return and is ready to welcome us home with open arms. Later on in Luke 22, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Check out what verses 59 through 62 says. It's, it says, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he was a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. See, as was, the, as was with the case with Judas, there's no denying Satan's work in the life of Peter. Unfortunately, Satan doesn't stop with Peter. Following Jesus' arrest on the wee morning hours on that Friday, Satan continues to attack while Jesus stands trial before the religious rulers. I'd invite you to turn back over to Mark 14. In the first week of our series, we learned that Satan is a deceiver who uses lies as a tool to bring about our destruction. And we find yet another example of this in Mark uh, 14, verses 55 through 64. It says, The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. What do we, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. You see, as mentioned earlier, the religious rulers weren't exactly Jesus' number one fan. They were at odds with him for the majority of his three-year ministry. And they hated him so much 
that they even wanted to kill him. Which is, of course, the desire they had in common with Satan. And now as Jesus stands trial before them, they see an opportunity to make their desire a reality. And because we know that Satan already has a foothold in their lives, it should come as no surprise to us that they were willing to use one of Satan's primary tools to accomplish their mission. Lies and deceit. In verse 56, it says, Many testified falsely against Jesus. 57 says, Many gave, or some gave a false testimony against Jesus. And just as before, Satan's work in the lives of the religious rulers is evident. However, what's ironic is that Jesus isn't condemned as a result of the false testimony and the false witnesses. Rather, he is condemned once he speaks truth. See, he was flustered. The, the high priest was flustered by Jesus' lack of response to all of these accusations. And so the high priest finally addresses Jesus himself. He asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And we find Jesus' response in verse 62. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then we, receive, then we see the high priest's response to that. He tore his clothes and asks, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him. See, Jesus spoke the truth, and yet he was accused of lying. He spoke the truth, yet he was condemned to die. It's important for you and I to understand that there are, unfortunately, there are going to be times when the lies speak louder than the truth. When the lies speak louder than the truth. And when those times come, it's usually an indicator that our enemy is alive, well, and hard at work. And as was the case in this scenario, when the lies speak louder than the truth in our lives, the result is never good. In fact, it usually leads to sin in one form or another. Therefore, as Chris encouraged us the past few weeks, we must be prepared to combat the lies with the truth of Scripture. Because it's the only offensive weapon we have. And our failure to do so will only lead to Satan accomplishing his mission in our lives. As we think about what's gone on already up to this point in this week, Satan certainly has made his presence felt in the week following the triumphal entry. However, his most significant work is yet to come. Following the trial, Jesus is brought before a man named Pontius Pilate, the Roman official who was in charge of that region. The region. And despite finding no evidence of wrongdoing, Pilate eventually gives in to the demands of the crowd and hands Jesus over to be crucified. And it was this decision that opens the door for Satan's greatest triumph, the death of Jesus. Allow me to read Mark's account of the crucifixion starting in Mark 15, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. Jumping down to verse 33, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jumping down to verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Satan's mission is accomplished. He did what he set out to do. With the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus, Satan has defeated his adversary. His influence and work in the lives of the religious rulers, the disciples, and many others has paid off. Jesus is dead and buried. Consider for a moment those who loved Jesus and followed him during his ministry on earth. They could only watch from a distance in disbelief. The person who had had such an enormous impact on their lives was now hanging on a cross. The one they believed to be the Messiah was dead. And as they witnessed these events unfold, I can't help but if they wondered to themselves, is this how it ends? Could it really be over? Has the enemy won? And I think there's going to be times in our lives as we encounter different obstacles and challenges and attacks from Satan where you and I may ask the very same type of questions. Is victory even possible in this scenario? Am I going to be able to bounce back from this attack? Can I make it through all of this? When is this going to end? Maybe you've experienced a season of life when Satan attacks again and again and again, just like he did following Jesus' triumphal entry. And as a result of the attacks, you've been beaten down and overwhelmed. You or maybe your family, you can't seem to catch a break. Maybe it's that sickness has made things challenging. Financial hardship has become a huge burden. There's no relief from the ongoing relational tension that you've been experiencing. And now you're going through a period in your life when the devil seems to have victory. Has the enemy won? Certainly that was the case on that Friday when Jesus hung on the cross. It appeared that Satan had dealt the knockout blow. After all, Jesus is dead and buried. Yet we know that's not how the story ends. Three days later, the stone is rolled away and Jesus emerges victorious. He emerges victorious over sin and death and Satan. And so what you and I need to remember is while there may be seasons in our lives where we feel like Satan has won, don't let the lies speak louder than the truth. And the truth is this, that Jesus is victorious. And through him, we also have victory. We also need to remember, though, that while Satan is fighting a losing battle, he's still fighting. His desire to bring about our destruction in our lives hasn't changed. He continues to look for someone to devour. So just because our victory in Christ is secure, that doesn't mean you should let your guard down. It would be foolish to do so. As long as you're a follower of Jesus and you're living your life for him, there's a target on your back. You should expect challenges. You should expect attacks. Scripture is clear about that. 
So the question that we need to ask ourselves, the question that we need to answer is, what should we do when we find ourselves in the midst of Satan's attacks? What should we do when it feels like Satan is winning? You see, it's during times like these that our faith is put to the test. In these moments, in these seasons, will you have true faith? Will you have confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do everything he has promised to do? That's true faith. Confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do everything he has promised to do. And of course, I hope that we will have that kind of faith. I hope that our faith will not waver. But in order for that to happen, in order to stand firm in the midst of Satan's attacks, our only hope is to turn to God because we can't do it on our own. Psalm 121, 1 through 3 says, I look up or I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. We need to remember this truth. We need God if we're going to pull through. And in the midst of our trials, we also need to remember Job's response when he was attacked by Satan. After Satan's attacks robbed him of nearly every earthly possession, resulted in the death of all of his children, and afflicted his body from top to bottom with painful sores, Job was encouraged to curse God. They said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And maybe you've endured so much in your own life that you're kind of thinking, yeah, it's not a bad idea. It feels like the enemy is one. However, Job did just the opposite. Instead of cursing God, he praises him, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And while I realize that is a very difficult place to get to, it's easier said than done. This is the response that we need to work toward. Because it would certainly be easier to curse God rather than worship him when we're facing all of these challenges. Of course that's easier. So we must be diligent about praying that God would grant us the strength and grace to respond to Satan's attacks as Job did. As this message and this entire series comes to a close, I simply want to remind you of the truth that will always speak louder than the lies. Despite the fact that we have a powerful enemy who will stop at nothing to bring about our demise, let's not quickly forget the words of 1 John 4.4. 4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So no matter what the enemy throws our way, you know that God is greater and he is and will be victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. God, for for allowing us to go through a series that reminds us that someone is out to get us, to remind us that somebody wants to destroy us. But God, on the other hand, 
we're also reminded by the fact that you love us, you care about us, you want us to follow you and stay close to you. God, so help us to rely on you. May we turn to you for the help that we need. God, and through you, may we experience the victory that you already have claimed. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.